As I made my way to the pulpit, I saw some surprised looks. Typically, the gentleman is much taller and much less bald than the person that is standing before you. Now, I am actually pinch-hitting for Pastor Davey. The reason I'm standing before you and not Stephen is we need to be praying for our pastor. A significant thing occurred in his life this week, and I want to read a little letter that he uh, had given to me to read to you today. Stephen says, Dear Flock, this past Thursday, I re-injured my knee, the same one I injured three years ago. This time it will require surgery, which takes place on Monday afternoon. The good news is that all of this was prearranged by our divine physician long ago. In fact, before time began. The bad news is I will miss the joy and encouragement of our sweet assembly today and next Sunday. Andy will feed your souls this Lord's Day, and Doug Bookman will expound the word on Easter Sunday. I will be listening online, singing with you, and studying the word with you, thanks to our live services online. Marcia and I covet your prayers over these next few days. She's a wonderful nurse, but I'm a lousy patient. She'll need extra grace. I want you to know that I do not intend to be away as long as I was the last time this happened, so you can expect to hear me preach from a chair in the near future. I'm pretty sure I can sit down and yell at the same time. It's about time we find out. I'm praying that you will be encouraged and challenged today, dear flock. Our Lord is on the throne. Much love to you all, Stephen. Before we begin our message time together, I think it's important for us to pray for our pastor and pray for his uh, surgery tomorrow and recovery and also ask the Lord's blessing as we open his word. So let's take our minds and hearts to the Lord in a word of prayer. Dear Only Father, we are thankful for who you are and what you've done for us. You are a great God. You are the Messiah, the King. And Lord, as we draw our minds today to that Palm Sunday years ago, we want to, along with your disciples, praise you for the fact that you are the King. You are the Savior. You're the Redeemer. You're our God. So, Lord, we are thankful for who you are. And we are so thankful for what you have done. And, Lord, as we are reminded this week of your death and sacrifice, and, Lord, as we are reminded of your resurrection, may this week be an encouraging week for us, but, Lord, a challenging week as we praise you and worship you and magnify and glorify you for who you are and what you've done. Lord, we pray for our pastor today. Lord, we love Stephen. We appreciate the shepherd that you have given to us. And the teacher that he is and how much we learn and grow and how richly we are blessed by having him as our pastor. So Lord, I would pray that you would comfort him today. Lord, as the pain is there and, and the surgery is looming tomorrow and then the difficulty of the recovery after that, Lord, I pray that you would strengthen our pastor. 
Lord, that you'd encourage him in yourself. That you'd strengthen and comfort Marcia as well. And Lord, I pray that you would just have a hedge of protection around their family. Lord, we love him. We love them. We miss them. So Lord, I pray that they would have a wonderful day worshiping with us as well. Lord, as we now take our minds to your word, may you challenge us, encourage us, speak to us. Lord, may we walk away changed, more like Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Luke chapter 19, folks, Luke chapter 19. Our text is going to be in verses 35 to 40. We're going to focus in on that portion of this narrative, this story. But what we're also going to do is I want to set the stage here in a moment as we unpack this wonderful day, Palm Sunday, the start of a Passion Week. This week is an exciting week in the life of the believer, in our lives. During this week on Friday, we will be reminded of the sacrifice, the death of Jesus Christ. On that cruel tree, he died so that we might have our sins forgiven. But then on Sunday, we come back together next week and we celebrate together Easter Sunday, the fact that Jesus rose again because of his resurrection. We have life. We can have eternal life through him. It's an exciting week. This week has been labeled the Passion Week, the Holy Week. It's an important week in Jesus' earthly ministry. It culminated the earthly ministry and ultimately why he came. But as that week started, there was a significant day, Palm Sunday. I want to draw our minds and hearts to that today. This is a significant week. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the gospel writers, each take a third of their books, respectively, to deal with this final week of Jesus' earthly ministry. John, in his gospel, actually takes the last half of the gospel to focus on the events, the circumstances, all of that taking place in this final week of Jesus' life. That week began with Palm Sunday. Jerusalem had swelled in size because of the influx of pilgrims making their way to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover, and they would come to worship and sacrifice to God, and so Jerusalem had swelled in its population. And the culmination of hostilities between Jesus and the religious leaders will begin again today on Palm Sunday and will ultimately be carried through through the week, culminating in his death on that Friday. But Jesus, on the start of that week, the miracle worker, the one that the crowds had followed, journeyed to Jerusalem. And the events that take place on that day are significant. And it's to that that I want to draw our attention today. Our main text is going to be verses 35 to 40, as I had mentioned. But to set the stage, we need to jump back to verse 28. Talk about this beginning stage of when Jesus then will ride into Jerusalem. I'm in Luke chapter 19. Let's begin in verse 28. After he had said these things, he was going on ahead. And I'm reading out of the NASB today. 
You might have a different translation. The he there is Jesus, and some of your translations supply that. After Jesus said these things, he went ahead, Jesus, going up to Jerusalem. When Jesus approached Bethpage and Bethany near the mount of, that is called Olivet, the Mount of Olives, he sent two of the disciples saying, go into the village ahead of you. There as you enter, you will find a colt tied on which no one yet has sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, the owner said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. This day begins with Jesus giving some instruction to some disciples. And it's a powerful challenge as we're going to look at. And through the Old Testament scriptures, as we look at our passage, you're going to see very significantly, a lot of times when we come to Palm Sunday, we miss some of the pictures, some of the symbolism, some of the illustrations, some of the prophecies that were laid out and fulfilled on this Sunday morning. One of these is found right here in this opening setting. Jesus tells two disciples, go ahead of me, and he's at Bethany and Bethpage, it says, which is two miles to the east of Jerusalem, at the base of the Mount of Olives. And Jesus says, I want you to go ahead of me, bring me a colt, one that has never been ridden. Now, as you are going to get the colt, there might be some hiccups. Somebody might ask you, why are you taking my colt? Which... Seems pretty obvious, okay? And so the two disciples go, they go to get the colt, and sure enough, the owner comes out and says, you're taking my colt, what are you doing? And they said, the master has need of this. And they brought it to Jesus. Oftentimes we see this, and we we just look at this as a setup for him then riding the colt into Jerusalem. But there's some powerful imagery and some prophetic utterances that were made to this event. And they're found in Zechariah 9, verse 9. The prophet says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted or seated on a donkey, even on a colt. The foal of a donkey. What these disciples are doing are carrying out this prophecy that Jesus would ride into Jerusalem, the Messiah would come, the king would come on a donkey, this foal of a donkey, this colt. And so Jesus' entrance into Jerusalem pictured the entrance of a king. Privately up to this point, he had done a number of miracles, and they had gotten out, and the people gathered around to see this great miracle worker. But a lot of times, Jesus had told them not to claim who he was. That ends today. He is riding into Jerusalem as Messiah. And when Jesus entered the city, there were a lot of various reactions and opinions to who he was and what he had come to do. And today, for a few moments, I want us to take our attention, put ourselves, if we can, into the sandals of those that were there that day, kind of be involved in this scene and learn the reaction, see the events, talk about what happened on that first Palm Sunday. 
So as we focus in on our text here, verses 35 through verse 40, we're going to focus first of all on the respect of the disciples. The respect of the disciples. In verses 35 to 38, Then they brought it to Jesus, these disciples, and they threw their coats on the colt and put Jesus on it. And as he was going, they were spreading their coats on the road as soon as he was approaching near the descent of the Mount of Olives. The whole crowd of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the miracles which they had seen, shouting, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. What a scene. The respect of the disciples. They bring the donkey, they bring the colt to Jesus Christ. And the text tells us in verse 35 that they begin to do something here. It says that they threw their coats on the donkey. And we see the actions here of respect. They begin to lay out their coats on the donkey. Now, why would they do that? Well, they made Jesus a saddle. Jesus would ride this donkey then into Jerusalem. But as we go on and see in verse 36, they begin to lay out coats on the ground and along the road. What's happening there, Andy? Well, it's not just a hot day and they're laying this out, nor are they just laying these out to give sure footing to the donkey. There's something significant taking place, and oftentimes we miss this. In 2 Kings 9 verse 13, a very similar instance is taking place. Let me read it to you. Then they hurried, and each man took his garment and placed it under him on the bare steps and blew the trumpet, saying, Jehu is king. There's a lot of symbolism here. In 2 Kings chapter 9, when Jehu became the king and he ascended the stairs to go and sit upon the throne, the people laid out cloaks and garments, their coats, on the ground for him to walk on. They paid homage to the king. Josephus, describing that event in 2 Kings 9, makes it an allusion to what you and I would know as rolling out the red carpet. He got the red carpet treatment. This was homage to a king. So when these disciples in Luke 19 are laying out the coats, this is significant. This pictures something. This is our king. We are worshiping the king, paying homage to the king. Now, there was another action of respect. And in Luke 19, we don't have it recorded for us. We don't call this Sunday Coat Sunday. We call it Palm Sunday. And in Matthew and in Mark's Gospels, specifically in Matthew 21, verse 8, and Mark 11 verse 8, the Bible records that along with the cloaks that were spread on the ground, the people there waved palms and they laid them on the ground. Now, why didn't Luke record this for us? We have to take into consideration audience. Luke is writing to a general Gentile audience that oftentimes would not pick up the significance of the palm. Matthew and Mark are writing to Jewish audience, and they caught the symbolism right away. The reason they're waving palms and the reason they're laying them on the roadway is not that they just grabbed the nearest branches close to them and just started waving things. There was some significance to what they were doing, and it happens when we understand what the palm was to the Jew. 
The palm branches were first used during the Feast of Tabernacles. And during the time of the intertestamental period, they began to be used or become known as a symbol for victory. The palm was the national emblem of an independent Palestine. In essence, the palm, in other words, was their flag. So as these Jews are coming together and waving the palm branches and laying them down, in essence, they're waving their flags. He is the victor. It reminds me, it comes to my mind as oftentimes our troops come home from serving on a foreign field. And they come back home, and they come off the plane, or they come off the bus, and there's a group of people that are there waving the American flag, welcoming them home. That's the image here. They are waving the flag. They are waving their symbol of victory. There's significance here. The actions that are happening here are not just people looking to do something. They are significant as it applies to the Old Testament. He is our king. He is the victor. So we see the actions of respect, but accompanying these actions, there was the testimony of the respect. Look at verse 37. And as he's descending from the Mount of Olives, the crowd begins to what? Praise God joyfully with a loud voice. And they're shouting. And notice what they're yelling. Blessed is the... King, who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest, along with the actions of respect, declaring him king and declaring him the victor, there was the praise. And this is significant. When we see here in verse 37 that Jesus is coming down from the Mount of Olives, to many of us, a trigger takes place in our mind. We think of the Mount of Olives, and the Mount of Olives has significant eschatological significance. It's upon this mount that Jesus will return and place his foot, and the mountains will split, and I'll read that passage in a second, and he will establish his kingdom, the second coming of Jesus Christ. Zechariah 14, 4 and 5 describes that event. On that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which is in the front of Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives will split in its middle from east to west by a very large valley so that half of the mountain will move toward the north and the other half toward the south. You will flee by the valley of my mountains. For the valley of the mountains will reach to Azel. Yes, you will flee just as you fled before the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Notice this, folks. Then the Lord, my God, will come and all the holy ones with him. You and I know that that's describing the second coming of Jesus Christ, where then he will officially establish that millennial kingdom, that ruling in, in Jerusalem for a thousand years, and we will rule and reign with him. Hindsight is twenty twenty. We see that. To the Jews, they didn't see that. This event on Palm Sunday was that event. To them, as Jesus is riding into Jerusalem, they are pictured as, they think they are, the holy ones accompanying him to the temple, to Jerusalem. 
And so they're laying out the garments. They're waving the palms. This is our king. And now they start singing and shouting about it. This is the king. This is the victor. This is the Messiah. Here's the redeemer. He is going to establish his kingdom. And we begin to see that they start quoting from another passage of Scripture. And it's often indented in our text. In verse 38, they start shouting, Blessed is he who comes the king who comes in the name of the Lord. And this is from Psalm 118. And it's a significant psalm that has a lot of imagery tied to it as well. Psalm 118 was used as the king would go to the temple to sacrifice during the Feast of uh, Tabernacles. And as he would make his way to the temple, the entourage would come with him. And it was meant to be sung responsively. And so Psalm 118, what they would do is the king would read some lines or sing some lines, and the people would responsively sing back other portions. And he would lead the group of them to the temple mount to ultimately sacrifice to God. Look at all the imagery that's taking place. By this group of disciples singing this and shouting this out in verse 38, what are they doing? Our king is riding us to Jerusalem. We are his entourage coming as he establishes his throne. His disciples were claiming this is the king. This is the victor. And they're shouting that out and waving the palm branches to symbolize. And notice the final line, peace in heaven. Now, we would expect maybe peace on earth. We've seen that before. What's he talking about? Peace in heaven. God's purposes are being played out. Now, we know Jesus knew ultimately what this symbolized, that he would come, and this would lead up to his death and resurrection and the redemption that would come. To them, they're saying God's purposes are being called out before us. We are seeing them revealed right now today. The king is riding in. He's taking his throne. The respect of the disciples. Now, as they're doing all these actions and singing all of these praises and shouting, there's a commotion. And people are gathering to get involved in the commotion. What's all this going on? And they see the palm branches. Oh, this is the miracle worker. This is the king. And they start chiming in. But not everybody is thrilled. Look at verse 39. Come to the second point of this text, the reaction of the Pharisees. The disciples, he's the king, he's the victor, this is the Messiah, he's establishing his rule, it's happening. Verse 39, some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. Stop this. Tell them to be quiet. Shut their mouths. They are not to be claiming this. And the Pharisees are outraged. The priestly establishment was understandably disturbed. The conspiracy against Jesus has been building for three years. And in Scripture, we actually see that there were seven instances of official plotting against him two efforts at arrest, and three assassination attempts before his time would come. The Pharisees, to say it mildly, do not like Jesus. And he has been a thorn in their side for a long time. 
And now a whole entourage of disciples and their gathering masses are claiming him as king. Stop this. There were reasons why the Pharisees had trouble with Jesus. There were political reasons for stopping Jesus. Up to this point here where Jesus is now riding into Jerusalem, over the last 100 years prior to this, there had been 12 uprisings in Palestine that were officially subdued by Roman force. There were people that were claiming that they were messianic and so forth, and Rome had to step in and stop this. Now, all of that is being thrown aside. This guy is openly claiming he is the Messiah, and we're fulfilling Zechariah 14. We're fulfilling Zechariah 9. They're calling out the praises of Psalm 118. This is not lost on the Pharisees. They are claiming he is king. This has to stop, or Rome is going to step in here. The problem here was that another messianic rebellion under Jesus would only shatter the precarious balance of authority, breaking Rome's patience and might lead to direct occupation by Roman legions. If this does not stop, Rome may step in and they may dwell among us and we may not be able to worship in the temple. This might get squashed, political reasons. We've got to stop this. There were religious reasons why this needed to stop in their minds. People were hailing this teacher of Galilee as Messiah. That is blasphemous. This is not the king. This is not the Messiah. This teacher is not him. And in private, he had been shushing them for a period of time. Now he's just blatantly claiming he is. Religiously, there were problems. Personally, the Pharisees had been bested by Jesus in public debate. Many times they brought questions to him, trying to stump him, trying to cause him to fumble over his words or not say or or kind of catch him in a lie or a trickery. And every time this Jesus responded with an answer that blew their mind. Not only that, this guy has been openly calling us vipers. He's been calling us whitewashed tombs. He's been calling us the devourer of widows' houses. These guys were humiliated. This has to stop. Economically, there were problems with Jesus. He had stepped into the temple, driven out the money changers, and drove out all the animals and overturned their tables, and this disrupted this business that they had going. So to the Pharisees, there were political issues, political reasons to stop this. There were religious reasons to stop this. This is not the Messiah. There were personal. He is not a friend of ours. He's openly debating us and, quite frankly, ridiculing us in public. And there were economic reasons. All of these things came to a head, and they will go into a head further through the week and ultimately culminate in the death of Jesus Christ. But on Palm Sunday, they've had enough And they said to Jesus, teacher, rabbi, rebuke your disciples. Stop them now. And then we come to the final point. I love this verse in Scripture. We see, lastly, the response of Jesus. 
Up to this point in our passage, Jesus has been silent. The last time he spoke was when he told and gave the directive to his disciples to go and get the donkey. And now Jesus responds to the Pharisees. Notice what it says in verse 40. But Jesus answered, I tell you, if these become silent, speaking of his disciples, the stones will cry out. Don't you love that? I do. This is purely extra biblical. Don't you wish for a moment that the disciples would have been quiet and we could have seen what that was like that the stones cried out? There's a lot of debate as to what is going on here, what Jesus is saying to them. Some believe that Jesus has now entered or has arrived at Jerusalem. And the stones he's referring to here would be the temple, the stones that were built to make the temple. And Jesus is saying that the temple would actually cry out that he is. Some argue that these are stones and Jesus is still on his descent down from the Mount of Olives and these are stones that he's riding over and he looks around and he says the stones would cry out. Truthfully, it doesn't matter which is correct. Here's the point of all of this. Jesus is saying creation knows who their creator is. And if my disciples do not praise me today, creation will cry out. See, something significant is taking place. The Messiah is being declared. The King is coming. This is part of God's divine plans for mankind. And Jesus says, on this day, if my disciples don't praise me, you know what? All of nature will begin to sing my praises. I am the King. There's deep irony in these words. Deep irony to these Pharisees. And here's the irony, folks. The irony is that creation is aware of Jesus. But the leadership of the nation of Israel is not. And Jesus says, creation knows who I am. And they will praise me. So these shush, they will sing my praise. What a response. As we come to the end of verse 40, you and I ask ourselves, what does all of this mean, Andy? It's a great story. Some of you may have seen some things today that you may have missed as you read through about some of the Old Testament uh, prophecies and some of the imagery that was taking place. It's a great story, but what does that mean to me 2,000 years later? I want to challenge you today. Today we begin this Easter season. And later this week we will be reminded and will reflect upon the sacrifice, the death of Jesus Christ. And during that service of shadows we'll be reminded of the cost and the punishment and the payment that was paid for you and me. Because of that, we can have forgiveness of sins. And then as our week continues on, we come to Easter Sunday, which is an exciting Sunday where we reflect on the fact that we serve a risen Savior. He is alive. And because of that, we have life. 
Here's the point of this passage. You and I need to praise our God for who he is and what he has done for us. And I'm not calling us to some emotional motivation. I'm talking about a deep praise. And believers, we need to do that today. We need to do that this week. Praise our God. He is the King. He is the Messiah, the Redeemer. In Him is victory in life. We need to praise Him for that. Can I leave you with one final challenge? That is this, believers. You and I need to praise the Lord. Do not let rocks do your job. Let's pray. Dear Holy Father, Lord, we thank you for who you are. The King, the Savior, our God. The victor, the one who has overcome death, who has conquered the grave. And because of that, we have forgiveness, and because of his resurrection, we now have life. And Lord, we are so thankful for what you have done for us. We are so thankful for who you are. And Lord, I would pray that we as your people would praise you this week, praise you today for who you are and what you have done. Lord, may creation not do our job. May we do it willingly for you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.